So picture the scene. There's a crowd of people. Jesus is uh, there. He's, he's talking to them. And in this crowd, there are Jesus' disciples, some of his closest friends, those who he loves dearly and who love him dearly. And they are sat likely at his feet as they would like good um, uh, Jewish uh, uh, students listening to their rabbi, their teacher, the one who had wisdom. And they sat there. And also in this crowd, you've got your everyday um, folk, your everyday sinners, the, the tax collectors as well. So actually, they're not even just your everyday sinners. They're the worst of sinners. In fact, in Jesus's crowd, those, uh, uh, those who served Rome, the great enemy. And everyone's likely heard of this wandering rabbi, this teacher who is wise and he's, he's preaching and performing all these wonderful, miraculous signs. And so they've come out in, in droves to come and hear him speak. And Jesus welcomes all into his presence, regardless of their moral or social standing. So yes, he will have the worst of the worst in his company. And there, on the outskirts of the crowd, perhaps a little bit further removed from everyone, so as not to defile themselves in present company, stand the uh, Pharisees and the scribes of the law of Moses. And when Jesus starts, first starts talking, he's, he's telling these, these different stories. First, a story about a lost sheep, then a story about a lost coin, a woman who finds her lost coin, a farmer who finds his lost sheep, a shepherd who finds his lost sheep, and a story about two sons who are lost, who are found by their loving father. And then he directly addresses his friends, uh, those that are sat at his feet, and tells them a story about a shrewd financial services manager, uh, which Vic spoke about a couple of weeks ago. That was very good. But he does it so the crowd is still just about an earshot. And he tells them this story. And perhaps aware of the kind of grumbling of the Pharisees and the scribes who are off at a distance, kind of listening in and who have kept things under wrap. He finishes this story by saying, you cannot serve both God and wealth. You cannot serve both God and wealth, which is to say you cannot serve both God and anything else. If you're not worshipping God alone, you're not worshipping God at all. You're worshipping another God entirely. And by now, the rising tension among these elites, uh, these elites at the edge of the crowd has erupted into outright mockery of Jesus. They ridicule him. They laugh at him. They sneer at him with disparaging laughter. And Jesus rebukes them. He says, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts, for what is prized by human beings is an abomination in the sight of God. What is prized by human beings is an abomination in the sight of God. Whatever it is that you hang your heart on, that is not God, will not bear the weight of your heart. Whatever it is you hang your heart on that is not God will not bear the weight of your heart. Only God can bear the weight of your heart. And this is where Jesus then tells this story of this rich man and this poor man. So I've got a little bit of cold, by the way, so you might, I'm a bit snotty. I've had it for a while, though, so I'm not contagious. Right, I know what you might be thinking. Oh, great, another um, talk uh, on money. Oh, brilliant, really. Well, I hate to break it to you, but um, 
In fact, Jesus kind of doubles down in this one. He doesn't just want to talk about wealth and money. He also wants to talk about hell. So we get a, a lovely uh, a, a duo of things to talk about. Uh, Jesus loves to address these things. And a couple of weeks ago, Becky spoke. And a couple of weeks before that, she had said to me, oh, would you mind if we, um, if we swapped passages so I can do the one that you're doing uh, in a couple of weeks' time and, and I'll do your one? And I hadn't quite realized what I was signing up for. Uh, when I agreed to that. But yes, if you're reading the Gospels, and especially if you're reading Luke's Gospel, you cannot get away from the fact that Jesus wants to talk about money, and he wants to talk about it a lot. And also Jesus wants to talk about hell a lot. In fact, Jesus makes more mention of hell than Paul, Peter, Isaiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel combined. You cannot get away from it. So here we are. At least... That's what it kind of looks like this parable is about on the surface. It's about wealth and about money. And the kind of story is something like, don't love money or you'll end up in hell like the rich guy when you die. But it's about so much more than that. So much more. It's not about what happens when you die. It's about your life now. And above all, it's a story about justice. God cares deeply about justice. This is one of the overarching themes of the entire Bible, all the way back from the Old Testament. I think it's slightly unfortunate that we call it the, um, the Old Testament, as if it's something that can be relegated to the past, if it's something that's not part of the story of Jesus. Uh, the Old Testament is not plan A and Jesus' plan B. It's all plan A. And all of it speaks of the justice of God. Justice is God's plan throughout. So we should be kind of grateful for this story that Jesus tells us, no matter how crazy it is. Grateful that our God is a just God, a God who is also gracious and merciful. So to get our heads and our hearts around this parable, we've got to situate it in context. Who is Jesus addressing? Well, We've just found out Jesus is addressing the Pharisees and the scribes of the law of Moses, the religious elite, the wealthy in the crowd, the kind of Elon Musks and Rupert Murdochs of the day who have been sneering from the sidelines. And they don't just take issue with Jesus because he was slamming their, uh, their riches and their wealth. They took issue with Jesus on this point as a matter of theology. You see, the Pharisees were a little bit like the kind of grumpier um, Joel Osteens of their day, just with the, without the white teeth and the private jets and the quaffed hair. But they thought that if you had wealth, it was because God had given it to you, because you deserved it. They thought that if you didn't have wealth, if you were poor, it was because you were a sinner and you deserved it. Wealth wasn't a means to some other good. Wealth was a good in and of itself. Wealth was a sign that God had favored you over others. And of course, as many of us do with many different things, they had a lot of scripture which they used to justify their beliefs. And here comes Jesus, this rabbi, spouting nonsense like, blessed are the poor. For the kingdom of God will be theirs. What an idiot. And stuff like, don't worry about your clothes or what you will wear. And they're thinking, doesn't this guy know that, you know, our clothes are a symbol of our status of blessedness and righteousness? 
And other sentiments like, if your wealth isn't serving God's kingdom, then you are serving your wealth. Fool. Doesn't this Jesus realize that our wealth is a sign that we've been blessed by God's kingdom? Jesus is not just becoming a nuisance to the Pharisees at this point. Jesus is becoming dangerous at this point. He is a threat to their very way of life. And so he tells a story. There was once a rich man who wore the kinds of clothes that only Kim Kardashian can afford, the kind you can't buy in Primark, maybe. He wore purple linen, no less. Purple linen. And in the ancient world, there was a whole guild um, dedicated to the manufacture of purple cloth, of purple fabric. And it was a very, very expensive thing to get because uh, it was very hard to get hold of the purple dye. I like this little interesting fact that I found out when I was researching this. Uh, The purple dye, Tyrian purple, this sign of status and wealth and power, uh, was expensive because it was extracted from the hypobranchial gland of the murex, which, does anyone know what a murex is? No, it's a marine snail. A marine snail. And this was the dye that um, was put into the high priest's clothing at the temple and the tassels and uh, the little dark bits and the tassels. That was Tyrian purple, this sign of supreme wealth and status. So you can imagine the Pharisees would be hearing Jesus telling this story and describing this rich man in his purple finery and going, oh yeah, this, I like the sound of this guy. Uh, this guy sounds like he's got it together. This guy is blessed. This guy is righteous. He has made it. And Jesus goes on. Just outside this rich man's gated community lies the poor man. Actually, this Bible did it quite nicely, but normally it's translated as he just lay there, this poor man. But really a better translation is that he had been laid at the rich man's gate. In other words, he had been dumped there, which probably indicates that not only was he poor, he was also crippled. Grab a tissue. So you can see the kind of mirror image that Jesus is setting up here. One man covered in fine clothes, the other man covered in sores. The one likely having enough money in the coffers to be attended to by slaves, the other uh, or and be able to afford to pay off all of his sins at the temple. The other destitute and attended by dogs who he is too weak to fend off and who lick his festering wounds, which just to add insult to injury, also makes him ritually impure. One man makes merry and feasts daily. The other begs to eat the rich man's rubbish. Jesus puts them at totally opposite ends of the spectrum. The disparity between the two is huge. As much as the rich man has, the poor man lacks that much more. As much as the Pharisees would have said that the rich man was blessed and righteous, they would have called this poor man cursed, both deserving of the lives that they lived. But there is one thing that sets the poor man apart. There is one thing that sets him apart. The poor man gets a name. 
You see, the rich man is nothing more than his possessions. But the poor man is the possession of God. A little story. St. Lawrence of Rome was a third century deacon in the church during the reign of Emperor Valerian. And if you know your church history at all, you'll know that Valerian was not a fan of Christians. He did not like them very much at all. And in the year 258, Valerian ordered that all bishops, priests, and deacons in the church, all the clergy, were to be put to death. And some people took this as an opportunity to try and get something out of those people, people as well. So the, uh, the prefect of Rome, the kind of head magistrate and judge, went to St. Lawrence's church and knocked on the door and said, Hey, um, give me all of your wealth. Give me all of your riches. Give me all of your gold and money and your fine goblets and things like that. And I'll spare you. I won't let you uh, be punished under Valerian's edict. And Lawrence said, okay, sure, just give me three days. Give me three days, and I'll gather all of our wealth, and then three days' time, I'll hand it over. So that three days begins, and Lawrence begins to gather all the wealth in the church, all the gold and all the goblets and all the fine things that they had there, and he distributes it to the poor, to the needy. He gives it all away within those three days. So when the prefect of Rome came knocking at the door three days later to claim his booty, Lawrence said, yeah, sure, I've got your treasure. And he presented to him the poor, the crippled, the lame, the diseased, the blind, the sick, the tax collectors, the scum of the earth. And he said to the prefect, here, these are the riches of the church. These are our precious possessions. And needless to say, the uh, prefect of Rome didn't take to that very kindly. So he had Lawrence barbecued to death. And there's a nice little detail about that as well, that Lawrence, apparently when he was being, sorry, this is quite not very nice for a Sunday morning, but apparently when he was being cooked, he said, I'm, I think I'm done on this side now, you can turn me over. So I think we can take from this story an idea that every man, uh, every person that comes in here on a Monday morning into this building, and every woman that comes in here on a Thursday afternoon, these are the precious possessions of the church. These are God's precious possessions. And the poor man's name in Jesus' story, his name is Lazarus. There's no connection here with the Lazarus that we meet in John. The name comes from the Hebrew El-Azar, which means God has helped, or God is my helper, or God is on my side. Lazarus is God's most precious possession. He is God's lost sheep, God's lost coin, God's lost son, God's pearl of great price, God's precious possession. The nameless Rich man is nothing more than his possessions. And Jesus goes on and says that the rich man dies and is buried because he could afford to be buried. That was a privilege of the rich. And Lazarus also dies, and his body is likely abandoned and scavenged by uh, dogs and then eventually carried off to be burnt in a dump. 
But instead of shame, actually, we read that Lazarus is, in fact, carried off by angels into the veil of Abraham or Abraham's bosom or to be with Abraham. The rich man, however, winds up in Hades, also known as Sheol, or the the netherworld, meaning underneath. Uh, Hades literally means to be covered over, to be hidden, to be buried. It's the shadow realm. It's the grave. And this is the place where the Jews believe that all the dead go. So they believe that Lazarus and the rich man would be there, but in Hades it was broken up into different areas. Now before your brain might conjure up the kind of caricature of um, hell, which is the way that we translate the word Hades into English, uh, that kind of caricature that we have to thank Dante for, that very imaginative um, author and poet from the Middle Ages. Uh, You know what I mean, the kind of um, cavernous realm uh, where God has thrown unrepentant sinners into a place full of fire and brimstone and eternal conscious torment with devils probing you in places you'd rather not be probed. The place where God slams the door in the face of sinners and throws away the key. That isn't actually what Jesus is describing here. Our English word hell is much more in line with the original meaning of Hades, to be covered over, to be hidden. It comes from, uh, we used to use it in terms of growing potatoes in this country. We would say that we were helling potatoes when we covered them over with earth. So the idea of this kind of God-forsaken realm ruled by the devil that God consigns wicked wicked people to is not what Jesus is talking about. In fact, it's much, much worse than that. According to the Bible, you're only in hell for as long as you choose. Hell is a place that we create for ourselves, not a place that God sends other people. Hell on earth is a real thing of our own doing. And we don't have to look far beyond the deprivation uh, in our own towns, the brothels and drug dens uh, here. And the, I don't know if you saw the piece on Sky News this week about um, the poverty in Hastings. We don't have to look further beyond that even to the continent and war on the continent to see that hell is a place that we create for ourselves. It's a place where we hold on to our freely chosen and yet false identities. And notice what the rich man does, or rather what he doesn't do when he's there. He's clearly not very comfortable down there, so he cries out. He can see Abraham and Lazarus, and he says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he might dip the tip of his finger in water and might cool my tongue because I am in agony. The rich man doesn't ask to be freed. The rich man doesn't ask for forgiveness. He doesn't request God's presence. Instead, he asked Abraham to send Lazarus to get him some water. Because after all, Lazarus is is nothing. He's just that inconvenience from outside my front door. We might as well put him to use. Even here, in life as in death, the rich man, who knows Lazarus by name as well, sees him as someone not worth his time or his wealth. He does not see him as an equal. The rich man doesn't see Lazarus as a precious possession, but instead as an object, something that exists only to serve him. The rich man still hangs onto a false 
identity. One that says, you are what you have. And the more you have, the less you need others. A false identity. Everything that you hang your heart on that is not God will not bear the weight of your heart. And even when the rich man uh, pleads for Abraham to send someone to his brothers, he fails to recognize that one of his own brothers, one of his neighbors, has been lying on his doorstep, dying a slow death for years. This might have sounded familiar now to the Pharisees hearing this story. They would have had the Torah running through their mind, the Hebrew scriptures. Am I my brother's keeper? They might have thought. And throughout the scriptures, God told his people to love the least and the lost. Deuteronomy 10.18 says that God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And God commands his people to do the same. This threefold refrain, look after the orphan and the widow and the foreigner living among you, crops up again and again and again and again throughout the Hebrew Bible. It crops up as much as Jesus talks about money and health. It's like a stick of rock that runs throughout. And these three descriptions are paradigmatic. They're uh, descriptive, not proscriptive. They're descriptive of everyone who is in need, everyone who is poor, every vulnerable minority, everyone that you think might be the scum of the earth. These are the ones that Jesus wants you to love. When Jesus preached then, blessed are the poor, that wasn't a new innovation He wasn't preaching anything new. He was preaching the same message of the same God again, anew, afresh. The message that had been ignored time and time again. And that's why he has Abraham. He points Abraham back to Moses and the prophets. You and your brothers already have everything you need to know not to end up where you are. God told you in Exodus God told you in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and in Amos and in Hosea and in Micah and Zephaniah, Malachi, Isaiah and Jeremiah time and time again. Lift up the lowly. Bring your brother, your poor brother to the table. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. The rich man's wealth had pulled down the shade over his eyes on his brother's need. Jesus is pointing the Pharisees back to the very scriptures they used to justify their way of life by saying, you've ignored a key principle of God. Justice. Justice for the poor. And some people are scared of hellfire and brimstone. They think maybe the gospel is simply doing your best to avoid it. What scares me more is this warning of Jesus That we can believe more in the worth of our own possessions, of our material lives, our wealth and our stuff. More than we can believe in the worth of what God finds worthy. We can get so caught up in our material lives that even a message from someone who died and rose again will not get us to change. That's what scares me. But the good news as well about this passage, sorry, it's heavy, but there is good news. The good news about this passage 
is that no matter where we find ourselves in the story, whether we think that we're the rich man, we think we're Lazarus, and in reality we are both the rich man. We are those who try to prove their worth in anything but God. And we are Lazarus. We are utterly helpless in doing so. But the good news is that there is one who not only bridges but has bridged the great chasm between God and the grave. The great chasm that Abraham said was fixed and no one could pass it. There is one who passed it. The storyteller himself. Jesus. And this is what the story of Lent uh, reminds us about as well. We're in Lent at the moment, gearing up for Easter. That when Jesus died on Good Friday, he stormed the gates of hell and threw away the key. Jesus was not only anointed to proclaim good news, but good news to the poor. They are his precious possession. Good news to the poor. And to bind up the broken-hearted, to enact freedom for the captives, and to release from the darkness the prisoners, those sitting in shadows. That's the good news. The storyteller is the one who bridges the gap. So, you are not the sum of your possessions. You are one for whom God has passed, has crossed, has bridged the impassable abyss to take possession of. Amen.